0: Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Chaloner, and you join us on another cloudy day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. A little later on in today's show, we'll be joined by former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. But first and foremost, I'm delighted to have Patrick McDonough alongside me. Um, Pat is the CEO at Clarity Travel, an independent travel management company in Manchester with an award-winning range of corporate travel management solutions. Pat, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for joining us.
1: Thanks, Scott. Good to be here.
0: Likewise, real pleasure having you I'm on the air. Um, whole reason we are here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. And in thank light you. of the fact that today's business leaders are going through probably one of the greatest challenges of our time, I think it's fair to say, in the shape of the COVID-19 pandemic, I feel it would be remiss of me not to ask you just to what extent this has affected you and your operations, particularly in the travel industry?
1: Yeah, I I think it's plain to see for most people that travel has probably been one of the most profoundly affected sectors uh, in business. Um, Effectively, um, most travel businesses, and particularly in corporate travel right now, went from a a, a situation of business as usual uh, back in March to overnight uh, business all but drying up, um, barring uh, a few key industries uh, such as healthcare industries, uh, logistics, and some retailing. Effectively, people stop stop travelling. At the same time as people stopping travelling, we actually also had a, a reversal of uh, of trade as well, whereby there was a need to uh, to obtain and refund. Um, passengers for, for flights or hotels or or train journeys that had already been booked so in fact most of us went through a negative revenue situation for quite a sustained period of time and now we're we're bubbling along at anywhere between 5 to 15 percent of normal volumes uh on you know, really quite significant businesses where margins are are quite tight so the impact on travel in general has been, has been huge and the desire to travel the demand for travel obviously is is very subdued right now and we expect that to be the case for some time now um, whilst uh, whilst we recover and, and get back to something more like normal um, it, it's, it's certainly a, a huge challenge right now to, to get people moving with any confidence.
0: And what do you think the longer term effects will be on your industry in particular, especially with regard to corporate travel? Because the event sector is uh, very much gearing up for a shift toward a lot of remote delivery, less people traveling for conferences and such events. So that's certainly something that's going to be on the horizon as well, perhaps.
1: Yeah, it it is without a doubt. I I think we're realistic that... um, now businesses have made an adjustment that there are going to be several things uh, taking place. We we know that a lot of businesses are reviewing whether or not they actually need to have physical office locations, and that may reduce travel between those office locations. We know that many businesses are using video conferencing solutions to uh, to hold internal meetings, where before people may have travelled to have that internal meeting. And we know that in some industries, some of the 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 uh, requirements that uh, that drove people to travel on business are maybe being met through video conferencing as well moving forward. Plus, in in any downturn, uh, a travel budget is one of the areas that a business will look to address and reduce their spend on. And obviously, there's there's a, a prolonged economic downturn likely as a consequence of the pandemic. So we expect volumes to be reduced, but those volumes don't disappear in their entirety because business travel, I think, often it's misunderstood as being um, middle-aged chaps in a suit going to have important uh, mm. meetings or, or whatever. But business travel is so much more than that. It's so multifaceted. We send people to to places to build things. We send healthcare professionals to care for people, charity workers to to uh, to, to, to to do their work, sports professionals. Uh, to perform uh, obviously in their respective field. It's such a a broad range of things we send people to do and facilitate uh, travel for that uh, there is always a need for people to physically be in places. And I think as well, you know, one of the things that does ring true is that the video conference is great when, when it's the only thing you can do. But when there's a a, a real justification for being in the same place as somebody, be that things like just building better personal connections and engagement, then I think that will come back when people feel safe to do mm-hmm. so. It's um, it, it's just, uh, you know, at the moment that, that demand is suppressed because really there's a an unwillingness to get out there and travel. So we, we do know that the volumes are going to be down. There is an impact uh, naturally. Alongside that, in that many jobs will be lost in our industry, which is a great shame and uh and you know naturally um business travel agencies the leisure travel agencies are having to cut uh their cost to to reflect the new levels of demand that are likely so it's a very tough time for our industry. The furlough scheme has benefited the industry greatly um but that that goes at the end of october, and I think you know, unfortunately, there will be a lot of people out to work in the sector from uh, well, really, from now onwards.
0: And we talked about there the uh, the workplace and how that is sort of likely to adjust slightly during this. We've seen even mm. in the last ten years that there's been a lot more technology brought into the uh, the workplace and workplaces have changed and all of a sudden we've seen an acceleration of change right at the beginning of this new decade the 2020s. so in another 10 years time what sort of shape do you think the traditional office workplace is going to be in can you see people returning in earnest or is it going to be more people working from home on a personal basis do you envision
1: i think we see a blend um it's interesting, actually. If we go back ten years, many of the things that we were able to achieve as a business in exiting the offices and continuing operations uh, whilst everybody exited, maybe wouldn't have been possible. Um, you know, video conferencing was clunky. Uh, working remotely was very difficult. Perhaps the, there was more reliance on physical uh, infrastructure than there is now with uh, with the cloud and, and virtual services. So, uh, so actually, um, it's a good job it was now and not. 10 years ago, because I think the ability for business to adapt is that bit greater. And certainly in our case, we were able to move 600 people out of offices into remote working and barely miss a beat, really, in doing that. Um, so, so that's certainly – that capability has been realized to a, a huge extent. And we expect that, certainly for our business, we're going to continue with a blend of virtual and office working. We'll have fewer sites, uh, physical office sites moving forward, and I think most businesses will look at it that way too. I think when people spend physical time together in business, they will make sure that they're maximizing the value of that, so the return on investment becomes a very important factor within that, and there should be a focus on spending quality time with people. And many people are seeing benefits from working from home. I can speak from personal experience that I'm not spending two two hours every day traveling which is making a huge difference to my personal life with a young family. So I think we'll probably see a move towards a blend where the physical office still has a role to play, but perhaps it isn't the the be all and end all from a day-to-day perspective.
0: And one thing I always like to ask people in leadership capacities when they come onto the programme is that during this time that we've seen um, with COVID-19 and all the worry and uncertainty that that's caused, it, puts a lot of pressure upon the shoulders of business leaders to really step up and provide direction reassurance and sometimes that can be not only quite challenging but when Mm -hmm. you're sort of the person at the top of the tree of a business and there isn't anybody above you to refer to as there is with employees where is it that you tend to find inspiration as and when you need it and that direction that you need?
1: A couple of areas, really. I'm I'm fortunate that we're a member of the Business Travel Association, which is the UK body for business travel agencies. Um, So I'm able to talk to a peer group who are going through the same thing, uh, which I I find is very important. Um, I, uh, of course, have great support from my own team who uh, we have very open dialogue with and, um, uh, and obviously pull each other along when we need to. But one of the things we thought was so important was that we really opened the taps on internal communication within the business and, and, and got good feel for how people were feeling, kept people up to date, maintained a, a really high degree of transparency with people. We've done that in many different ways. But one of the most successful ways was uh, an internal podcast, which uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, we actually uh, did daily. We now do once a week. So all our employees can be kept up to date. That helps because we also get questions in and we have guests from around the business. It keeps people connected. So staying connected for me is very important. And then a series of things like town hall calls um, so so we can stay connected to, to, uh, to, to the, the staff in the business as well as fun things like quizzes and so on. So maintaining that connection a lot uh, because I never have been an, an ivory tower kind of lead, leader, I'd certainly never like to lock myself in the office and be remote from my people. Being at home makes that very difficult. So you've got to find ways to open channels of communication, keep your ear to the ground, and and hopefully, in doing so, um, it, it it motivates you to to lead that team.
0: And thinking about the future specifically over the course of the next 12 to 18 months, because we know over this period that we are going to have to adjust to a new normal way of living and working. What mm-hmm. is next for you and for the business and what are you really hoping to achieve during that time, Pat? Because it is going to be an uncertain time as much as anything.
1: Yeah, so number one is that we, we're having to make difficult decisions. It's very important to me that we make those diff- difficult decisions in the best way possible and that we treat people as fairly as we possibly can in doing so. So a big focus here at Clarity has been where we've had to announce job losses and things like that, we approach it in, in the best possible way. Uh, you know, really look after people through that process and, and take a very keen interest in supporting them through the other side, even if they're not remaining with the business. So that's that's the number one thing that we treat people well because people remember this kind of thing um the second thing i think is that our focus has to be almost an opportunistic one where we're we're doing everything we can to adapt to the future um that we're investing in technologies and service propositions that meet the the requirements of a world with covid um, so for example we built new authorization processes and risk assessment processes into the booking process that Give corporate customers more confidence to to travel and to to get their people to book, um, and uh, and also that you know we're I guess uh, positioned to be the you know the the real thought leaders in our industry as to how we should proceed. So for me, there has to remain a focus on growth in spite of all of this um, being perceived to be and being proven to be the 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 best position to cope with the new situation I think is is really hugely important for us and off the back of that hopefully we can grow the business.
0: And just finally Pat before uh, we do wrap things up, um, based upon your many years of experience in the, uh, the travel industry, if you were to give some advice to somebody who is maybe about to start their first day in a leadership role in an established business or was maybe looking to launch a business of their own, what advice would you give them to get them on the road to success? I think number
1: one is really know your business Um, so if you're new to the business spend time getting around the business and speaking to people and understanding the business from the ground up it's essential really because um, people uh, want to be led by somebody who understands what it is they have to do on a day-to-day basis but also representing your business you need to understand how it operates so getting that level of detail I think is hugely important, it it positions you well to, to lead people and for them to have confidence in your leadership moving forward.
0: I think that's incredibly sound advice indeed. Um, Pat, it's been a real, real pleasure having you join us on the uh, the programme uh, today. And as we've said uh, throughout this entire um, discussion, um, it is very much an uncertain time coming up and we can only really speculate on exactly what the future will bring as much as we uh, wish to plan for it. So I think given how enlightening it's been today, it would be wonderful to catch up in future and have you back on the programme in a few months' time just to see how things are getting on in the business and how the industry is moving forward
1: great. Right, I'll look
0: forward to it. I'd certainly welcome that. I've really enjoyed having you joining us on the show today and most importantly as well with all still going on, please do continue to take care and stay safe.
1: Thanks, Scott. You too.
0: I was speaking on today's programme to Patrick McDonough, CEO at Clarity Travel. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. During his playing days, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the ashes, both at home and away in Australia, as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. Since retiring from playing, he has become a champion for charitable concerns and mental health, as well as becoming Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. I hope that you all enjoy listening, just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Andrew. And all of that is coming up next.
2: Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we're joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today.
3: Real pleasure to be here. Thank you.
2: The pleasure is all of ours, you know. And you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname?
3: (laughs) Um, Well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Drescothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's to blame. I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at Mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, Uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly (laughs) stick other than within those group of players.
2: And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury?
3: Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop, and... Um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I have only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could.
2: And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's honour board after your first appearance?
3: Yeah, uh, look, uh, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost I'd been I was a Middlesex player I was Mm. captain of Middlesex all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever and then a week later I've scored a test century which is something I'd always dreamed out literally all my life and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test I mean it was literally the dream so and then suddenly I started thinking wow hold on potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails so It was a real shock to the system. Um, But I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 years of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without
2: a doubt. And I think... In those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness, they were there for you?
3: Uh, Well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive... um, Mm source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, But then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a a huge Hmm. role, you know, just in terms of, because I I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world, and uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you.
2: And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life.
3: I think so. Yeah, I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international cricket yes. And itself. in
2: those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I if I may I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that but perhaps more importantly um as a team how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling
3: yeah well the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was Mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room for the, I think it was the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible. (laughs) Like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Giles, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You Quite. know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And, um, yeah, it was just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open-top bus parade around London and... To understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's
2: such a key point. There there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual Competition itself. What a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. for, for Absolutely, uh,
3: uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we <laughs> were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately.
2: But uh, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch. Uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge.
3: No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours. And I had to dig pretty deep to do that.
2: Now, Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfill that role?
3: Huh. Um well a fair amount of resilience for starters mm. you know you're absolutely right you, you know I, I remember when i got the role it, it did feel like th- the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know the <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of england captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th- there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're going to have to dig pretty deep but i think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th- suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, w- that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. and It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations.
2: Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different, shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players? when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team?
3: yeah, those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own version of that ourselves.
2: I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. And i I'm, I'll I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well, it. Well surely
3: it's gonna be the Lord's one, right? Uh, sh- sh- of course. Yeah.
2: <laughs> um Sandra, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers
0: This has been the Leaders Council Podcast.